So a note to any of our listeners in Ottawa and Calgary, on June 12th, No History will be hosting our fourth annual History and Heritage Networking Night. This event is a chance to network with history and heritage professionals to engage with colleagues in the field and to grow your professional network. The Ottawa event will be at 5.30 Eastern Time at Darcy McGee's Pub on Spark Street. In Calgary, join us at 5.30 Mountain Time at Bank and Barron Pub. For full details and to register for the event, search No History on Eventbrite or find links on No History's social media pages. We hope that we'll see you there. For more information for the event in Calgary, please contact Emily at nohistory.ca. For more information for the event in Ottawa, contact Nick B at nohistory.ca. Welcome to Notice History, the podcast where we discover history all around us. We're your hosts, Nick Bridges and Keely McCavitt. Today we're joined by very special guest Danny Doyle, a conservator with Parks Canada. Danny has done conservation work across Canada, and in previous positions he's worked in America with the Smithsonian, Ireland at the County Clare, Cahir Connell Ring Fort, and in Egypt with the Penn Museum's Dig and Abida. Danny's conservation specialty is human remains. He is also a published author on all things archaeology and historian of the Irish language in Canada. Danny, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. Could you maybe start by uh, telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, you covered it pretty well there. Outside of what you've said, I have my master's in conservation, uh, trained in objects conservation, and especially archaeological conservation. That's where my basis is. As you said, my speciality is human remains. I don't work on them every day. With Parks, I am an archaeological and historic objects conservator, so I deal with things that are both dug out of the ground and things that are in national historic sites, museums, things like that. I am a player of the Ill and Pipes. I'm an Irish language speaker. I teach that with the high school in Ottawa as a credit course and a published poet. I've won some awards for my Gaelic language poetry as well. All around a Renaissance man. Yeah. Well, I try to be. <laughs> Covering a lot of bases. Yeah. So you've told us a little bit about your role, but can you expand a bit about what you do at Parks Canada? So archaeological and historic objects conservation is conserving and preserving heritage resources, both from national historic sites and archaeological sites. So we have obviously numerous archaeological sites across the country and active archaeological digs. We have our national parks. We have around 160 national historic sites and slightly more than 30 million artifacts. So it's uh, a lot of work to take an object that is potentially falling apart or might be in danger of not surviving into the future and being able to ensure that it is still a resource that we can have going forward for generations. So, so what would you say are the most challenging aspects of this work? Uh, the most challenging aspects would be that within the profession of conservation, there are about three main streams. Paper would be one of the streams, so that's anything that's 2 d and is made out of paper. That can include things like photographs, books. There's the stream of paintings. So that's obviously things on canvas or painted surfaces. And then there's us, which is objects, and it's everything else. So where a paintings conservator or a paper conservator, they can know intimately the materials that they're looking at. They can know the structure of the linen fiber of a canvas. I have to be a generalist. I have to know a little bit about just about everything. Because within the same week, I can have 
a variety of things come across my desk. I can have wood, bone, ivory, plastic, metal, glass, human remains, occasionally uh, animal remains. I've had mammoth molars. All these different things come across my desk that you need to know a little bit about or at least know the resources to be able to research to be able to cause no harm. So with this generalist approach, was that something that you could have selected in school? Or did you pick a specialization through your education or learn a lot on the job? Um, that comes mostly through your own education. I kind of myself took a roundabout way into conservation. A lot of people seem to plan almost from high school what stream they want to go into. So if you want to go into something like photographs, you would have a background in photography, but you also need a background in chemistry. If you're going into painting, you would have a background in fine arts and painting yourself, so you would know your materials. For myself, when you're coming into objects, you tend to have to have a very heavy chemistry background, uh, a history background or an art history background, and a lot of skills in things like glass blowing, blacksmithing, pottery, any of these things, and I just happen to have that combination. My passion was also archaeology. My background was already archaeology. I have my uh, degree is in Egyptology. So from that, it was just a natural fit that I would want to go into the, the objects conservation. I think that's really interesting how the position kind of requires a very varied set of interests as well as different specializations. Not only the interest in history itself as a practice, but also things like you mentioned glass blowing and pottery, like lots of tactile things and chemistry. It's just a really interesting line of work. It is really. There was... When I found out that conservation was a thing, it wasn't something I had planned to go in and be a conservator. Um, when I found out that conservation was a thing, it was a natural fit because you have the science side, which I loved, of being able to research and produce research papers, but also having to have a heavy, as I said, chemistry background, knowing the chemical formulations of adhesives and things like this and how they age, but also the art side, where you get to, if you're rebuilding a pot, and it's missing a piece, you have to remake that piece and put it in. So at Parks Canada, in our facilities, we have full wood shops. We have all these different areas where we can manufacture missing bits of furniture. We can manufacture missing bits of wrought iron, any of these things to be able to repair artifacts. So it really is a mix of the science and the art that when I found out about it, there was really no going back for me. That was the one profession I wanted. That's great. So just as uh, to build on that, what would you say has been, in the totality of your career, the most difficult rebuild for an object? Ooh. So the most difficult rebuild, we don't tend to really think of things in terms of rebuild, so that kind of throws me a little bit. Um, I would be looking at a piece and restoring it to a previous condition. We even kind of shy away from the term restoration because that's not what we do. We conserve what is there. If something has been damaged once it's in the museum, then we would be trying to put it back to the condition that it came into the museum in. So an example of that would be when I worked at the Smithsonian, and we had a very interesting modern art chalice that was blown glass by the artist that he had intentionally put through what we call a scavo technique, which is really unusual to see in modern glass. It's when archaeological glass has been in the ground for couple hundred years maybe a thousand years if you go to the museum you can see it gets this lovely iridescent film on it and it changes the color of the glass so when you go to the museum you see all these kind of brown vases that have a very purple look to them and it's 
very pitted and pockmarked with a little bit of crystalline growth. And that wasn't what the glass originally looked like. That's just what it's done in the ground. Well, this artist decided he wanted the vase to look like that. He wanted the chalice to look like that. So he put it through a very alkaline bath of solutions. And it's his work is in numerous art galleries across America. But a lot of these art galleries had been finding that all of a sudden his glass works, his chalices and vases would just sitting on a shelf fall apart and explode. So what we did was when we were looking at this vase, we found that it was growing kind of a crust on it, which is what you would expect from archaeological glass, but it was growing really, really fast. That within just the few years that this had been in the collections of the Smithsonian, that there was a noticeable change in the crystals that were growing on this vase, and it was actually when I put it under the microscope, there was micro pits in the chalice that you could see all of these alkaline droplets because he had never actually washed the alkaline solution off it was still eating into the glass actively so for something like that we contacted the artist in the past he said he just takes a brillo pad and cleans them off when they get a little too scaly well we can't do that in a museum that's very uncontrolled and that's not what a conservator would do so instead we had to try to neutralize it as best we could and then from that very delicately and that's where the art side comes in and your artist eye of having kind of um you have your own purview to make the line where you think ethically you can stop. Go in and scrape off the new crystals, but leave the old crystals in place so it looked like when it came in. That was really hard because mm. the crystals are just crystals. You can't tell what's old and what's new. So you're trying to take them back to a stage where it doesn't look as heavily crystalled as it did when it came in the collection. So that would be a pretty difficult one. Yeah, that's pretty mm. interesting. It sounds like a, a real living art piece, almost. Mm. It, most definitely, yeah, because <laughs> like, it is still growing stuff in the collection so we're doing the best we can but you can only do so much so you mentioned earlier that your expertise was in human remains and you have a lot of um, background in archaeological work and you also mentioned that human remains don't come across your bench every day it's not an everyday occurrence for you but when they do come across your bench what would you say your major concerns as a conservator are so that's a really good question there are some major concerns that come to my mind. Um, I have had experience with it. As a generalist, you tend to have your own speciality. So I can do a lot of things, but we tend to gain experience within a certain area, and human remains just happen to be mine. There's many people who are uncomfortable working with human remains, and it's not something that really bothers me. So because of that, by default in a lot of places, I end up being the person who works on them or who gets to work on them. For me, one of the difficulties is, or one of the concerns, is the ethics of working with human remains. It's a very, probably the most prominent concern with working with human remains. In the past, what we would see with conservation would be that conservators would take a very material-based view of human remains or sacred objects in general, that it is a bone and it is made of calcium and other minerals and we know what happens when they go into a really wet environment or a really dry environment and we know how to make them last that idea is really shifting within conservation especially within the last few decades that the idea of intangible aspects is coming more to the forefront so these are things that you can't see you can't touch you can't smell but are important to the integrity of the object so how it's viewed by the community, how it's viewed 
spiritually any of these things would be intangible and they're actually much more important in my mind than the physicality of the remains that obviously changes by communities but the main thing that I would look at now would be how to approach human remains or grave goods in a way that can retain the dignity and the respect of this being a deceased human being and that really informs how I treat them because you have to consider the ethics of that and whether any sort of intervention is necessary or whether it would even be appropriate, whether it would be something that the descendants of this person would want, no matter where this person is from, the descendant of this person, what they would want. And sometimes it's difficult because you don't necessarily know. So we take the approach of do no harm. It sounds like what you're describing is a major shift in the way that human remains and grave goods are being handled. And not specifically Parks Canada, but in the past, is it your experience that historically human remains have been treated the same as just objects? So that's a little difficult because it does vary from place to place, but I can speak more generally as to in the past, yes, there was a feeling within the field of conservation, but the field of conservation is actually a fairly new concept of having people who are trained conservators. So when we're saying in the past, we're talking about just generally people who worked in museums, sacred objects, spiritual objects, culturally sensitive objects, remains, things like this, that they would be viewed in a very scientific way. And that comes from a very, I would say, Western point of view, that uh, Western European cultures view these objects in a certain way. And what we're seeing is not broadly across the whole world, I can't speak that broadly, but we are seeing a, a move within the greater idea of conservation that not every aspect of an object is scientific and something that you can see and touch, that there is an opening up to other people telling conservators what is important about this object. And that's definitely a big shift because in the past, the conservators were the doctors that they were the people who would say, this is what's important. This is how we can preserve it and fix it. And there's There has been more of a relaxing of that and a realization that we can't necessarily tell everybody what's important about everything, that that's not mm -hmm. our job. Right, that, it, that that would offer only one perspective on the value of an individual in some cases or an object or something that's imbued with a spiritual power or an essence. Exactly. And even less specific than that, but just looking at what is important to a community, what object out of these collection of objects is the most important, that it is diff I can see why that is a difficult shift that is happening because we are trained specifically to look at the materials of an object and how to make those materials last as long as possible. So it is a difficult mindset to suddenly have all of that training where every day I look at every object around me when I'm having my shower in the morning, everything, and I'm thinking about the chemistry of the shampoos and I'm thinking about the staining factor of the porcelain and all these things. It's hard to turn that off and it's hard to be accepting of that's not the most important thing, but it is an important discussion to have. Feeding into that idea that you mentioned about preserving the intangible aspects of an object and dealing with communities, as a conservator, how would you reconcile and how do you reconcile your training 
with the fact that some things that may come across your bench are not originally intended to be preserved. So an example that I'm thinking of is the Gopskolaks pole, which belonged to the Heisla Nation on the West Coast, that had been taken away by an Indian agent and sold in the 20s, and it wasn't returned until 2006, but it was stipulated with that return that they could not let it disintegrate, which was its original purpose as an object in the community. And there was a lot of back and forth over the ethics of that. One of the arguments was, from the conservation point of view, that it was a historical object and it needed to be preserved for the history of not only the Heisland Nation, but also Canada, North America, all of these things. I'm wondering where the ethics would come into a similar situation like that for you? Well, as I said, there is this discussion ongoing about intangible objects. I would say that while conservators try to prolong things as long as we can, we are probably much more acutely aware than a lot of people that every object has a lifespan. So we are trying to extend that, but every object disintegrates in time. That is a losing battle. Everything eventually will disintegrate. The poll you mentioned is a very interesting case. It's not something I was involved in or worked on, but it is an interesting case because it is a poll that was taken away and stipulations replaced bringing it back. And it brings up that idea of the science world saying one thing is important, saying the materiality and the history is important, but the actual community who made the poll and who it is their poll is saying that's not what's important. That for them, there are other aspects to this that's important. For a lot of communities, the teaching of the symbols on the poles and the continuing of the carving tradition is the most important aspect. We see that with some of the masks as well where the historic masks are not as important as the continuing tradition and dancing with those masks and teaching the dances to children to show the strength of the continuing traditions. So one thing that as conservators we could do would be to document poles, to be able to have them in some form that those designs and patterns could be preserved in the future. It is a sad fact of colonialism that many of these designs would not exist unless the poles had been appropriated or misappropriated. In terms of something like this pole, where it was coming home from Sweden, that a replica was carved and given to the museum in Sweden, showing again that the strength of the continuing traditions. So with this pole, we do see some of the issues with the dialogue where material-minded, history-minded conservators would be saying one thing is important and putting stipulations upon an originating community. The problem with that being is there are issues with colonialism there where people are telling another culture what they should be valuing and finding important. So while it's not specifically a case that I've worked on or can speak directly to, that that is some of the dialogues and some of the conflict that are happening within the idea of conservation of people who are very material-minded coming up against these ideas of intangible heritage and who actually owns history. And what form history can take as well. So I think we've really drilled down on the Canadian context of conservatorship. Do you find that there's a lot of differences when you travel internationally and in all of the work that you've done? I most definitely do. Across the board, there are differences. There are differences in publishing standards, there's difference in approaches, there are certain 
treatments that we would do here that maybe wouldn't be as favored in other places. And there are reasons for this. There's obviously if we're dealing with a cannon that's sitting out in the Arctic that has very special conditions and we're going to be doing treatments for that to keep it in situ as opposed to if it's in Milan in a nice storage facility that it would be treated entirely differently. In terms of the baseline of conservation, it is fairly standard across the world that we have this idea of do no harm and conserve rather than restore. But even that from person to person where that line is drawn can be different. So I have seen differences, especially working in America, especially working in Egypt, that there are differences and there's different approaches to the smaller minutia of conservation, but the general broad idea is still the same. And when you say anything stands out to you that makes the context of Canadian conservatorship unique? So in terms of specifics, as an example, working with human remains, there is a difference in that with Parks Canada, human remains are not actively collected or displayed. However, in all places, I've never been in a place where human remains have actively been disrespected. There is always a respect for them. How that form takes can be different. So whereas in Canada, if I'm looking at human remains, I would likely store them in a climate-controlled room, in archival boxes, and make sure that each individual has their own storage space out of respect, that in some places that's not possible. So working in Egypt, having archival materials is much more difficult to find. So instead there, commingled remains, or disjointed remains, that we would have the local villagers make woven baskets, which are actually interesting because they reflect all the way back to pharaonic Egypt, this tradition of making reed woven baskets, and we would store the remains in that instead. In uh, a shed, but in a dry, cool area outside of the, the desert sun, if it is a full human remain, instead we would ask the local carpenters to make us a simple wood coffin which again is very similar to the coffins that would have been used 4,000 years ago in the Middle Kingdom of Egypt. So there is still this continuity, but the actual on-the-ground aspects of conservation can be different. Sometimes sourcing material can be different. Getting large quantities of solvents like acetone or alcohol can be quite difficult in Egypt. So you just have to make do with what you can get locally. That's really interesting. Uh, how do you think conservation is going to change going forward in the coming years and maybe even farther into the future? I can see within Canada a shift more to having conservators who are accredited with masters. Currently, Canada is one of the countries where we have a master's degree level, and you would usually have a master's if you want to run a lab. But if you just want to work in conservation, we do have college-accredited programs for that as well. However, that's fairly unusual. If I wanted to work in America to do any work in a lab, I would need to have my master's. And I'm seeing much more of a shift within Canada that more and more people are going into the master's-based program than into the, the college-based programs. In terms of conservation in general that I can see changes, one of the biggest things on our mind right now is plastics. Because most traditional materials, glass, pottery, bone, any of these things, humans have worked with for thousands of years. We know how they degrade just from thousands of years of experience. However, plastics are extremely new. Plastics are, what, 100 years old. And so because of this, it's too new for us to know a lot of the repair techniques that'll work, a lot of the storage techniques that will work. So there is ongoing work to try to preserve this material culture because there is the risk that 
an entire generation or two or three generations of human material culture, in 200 years there won't be any evidence of it because it's all made out of plastics. What we're finding with plastics is that even some plastics, even if they're stored in refrigerated conditions in the dark, that they still actively degrade. And it's something that is worrying because there was a push to have a lot of material put onto DVDs or CDs. Well, those are a little thin strip of metal between two bits of plastic. And so we're finding that some of those issue runs, especially the earlier ones, the plastic degrades, it breaks, that that metal corrodes, all that material is then lost. So there's a lot of ongoing research right now into just what exactly we do with plastics and how are we going to deal with plastics in the future. It's like the frustration of scratching your favorite CD, but times a billion. Exactly. Like, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what your favorite Canadian project that you have been able to work on has been in a professional sense? So I would say my favorite project has actually been through my work with Parks, which was a rescue excavation that happened on Cap de Rosier, which is on the Gaspé Peninsula, where a number of human remains were found. These were individuals who had left County Sligo in Ireland during the Great Famine on the Gortavur in 1847, I believe, Black 47. And they had come to Quebec. They had made the, at that point, about four-month journey on a, a sailboat across in terrible conditions. The coffin ships to come had been passed through the quarantine station, as far as I understand, and had then not made it to Quebec. So they had, unfortunately, crashed. Most of them had drowned. There were some survivors who had been taken into the village, but for the most part, as the bodies came up on the shore, that they were then buried and the location of this was lost. So this was a rescue excavation that had happened. These remains came for me to work on at Parks Canada to stabilize them. And for me, that was personally important. As conservators, we don't place value on objects or artifacts. We are trained to treat everything as though it's the same. If it's a Van Gogh or if it's your grandmother's watercolor, that we treat them the same. That's not always true in practice, but that's a, a noble ideal to have. So for me, while I treat all objects the same, I treat human remains with the utmost respect, this was personally important to me because these people were Irish speakers who were fleeing the effects of the famine, coming to Canada, and didn't make it and died under extremely tragic circumstances. So because of this, my chance to work on these human remains and to be able to maintain their dignity and respect while doing that was very important to me as a Gaelic speaker because of this connection that I feel with them, a relationship that I would have with my own people. I think that must have been such an enriching experience for you. And I think in a way, it was fortunate that you were the one who ended up working on those remains just because they are so, as we've been talking about in this episode, um, intangible. It has that cultural connection to you. Yeah, it really does. It's, it was not chance that I worked on these human remains. The project came into the lab, and I went to the lab supervisor and said that this is important for me to work on this. But it is something then that I am a Gaelic singer so <laughs> that I can provide for these remains in a culturally appropriate way by, while I'm doing my work, being able to speak in Gaelic around them. And for me, that was important. I don't know if that is would have been culturally important for them, but for me, it's culturally important to do mm -hmm. that. Another example of that would be my work in Egypt. I was working on human remains of a, a young girl who was likely a temple priestess and a man and a small infant that had come from the side of one of the burial complexes of Casa Kemwe 
in Abydos there from the Middle Kingdom, so about 2000 BC or so. And again, extremely enriching because you are working with a deceased human being. This is the last trace of this person's life that lives. We know from our readings from ancient Egypt, from their own writings, we're very lucky to have their writings, what a lot of their views on religion were. So from this, we know the importance of having the body remain, of having the name spoken. Unfortunately, the names weren't recorded for these individuals, but having um, the offering phrase said for them as something that would provide for them in the afterlife. And it was an interesting thing that when we had finished conserving the, these remains and the local carpenters had built these rectangular coffins for them that matched the style of coffin that they would have had originally been buried with that had been eaten away by scarab beetles, that it is just a thing that we do as a sign of respect that for that period, the body is placed on its side, looking at the side wall of the coffin. And so usually when you go to a museum, you'll see that eyes have been painted on that side wall of the coffin so that the soul can look out at the world and can see the sunset every day when they're buried facing the West. So it's one of these little fun shorthand things that we do that we draw the eyes on the side of the box and we thought it was just us until we started asking other places that are working on human remains from the middle kingdom and find out it's actually a fairly standard practice hmm. in the conservation of human remains from the middle kingdom of egypt the other thing since my background is egyptology and i can read and write hieroglyphs that one of the things that we do is again every day when i would come to work on these human remains that i would say the offering formula for them, the ma'acheru, and that's something that then we write on the inside of the coffin, so that that is a preserved piece for them that's culturally important to them. And these are little things that, whether or not you necessarily hold that in your own belief system, that it's a sign of respect for this person and what this person believed and the continuing respect that this person has as an individual. One of the most impacting things that I ever worked on was in the very beginning of my career, and was a small Egyptian terracotta pot all the way back from the pre-dynastic period. So we're talking thousands of years ago. And on the bottom of this little pot, there was a thumbprint that the person had put in the bottom of the pot. And for me, that was really important because that is, that's probably the only thing of that person's life that remains on this earth. The same thing, I was working on a lime-plastered tomb of a pharaoh, which was from my period of speciality. So that's one of the, the highlights of my career is working on a pharaoh's tomb, preserving the wall murals, and under the magnifying glass, I could see that when this tomb was originally being made in about 1650 BC, very hurriedly, they were stealing blocks from other older tombs to construct it and putting the plaster on the walls and making these very crude paintings on the walls, crude in style, not in form, that one of the artists had put his hand on the wall and left fingerprints there. Hmm. And again, it's that same instant connection to somebody that you can put your fingerprints right next to theirs and see the size is the exact same. And see that connection between yourself and somebody who lived 3,000 years ago. It's the same when you go into the caves in the south of France and see cave paintings of Neanderthals where they have spat ochre over their hands and made the handprints or early humans debated who made those. But from that, you have that connection to somebody who lived 20,000 years ago. And that's the only trace of that person left. And that's I absolutely love that. So I find working on human remains, to me, is probably the most important and enriching thing that I can do as a conservator because of that connection. I think it shows that your work is so much more than just conserving objects, whether those be human remains or 
um, pieces of pottery or whatever it might come across your desk. It really is um, preserving that culture, that intangible connection, and thinking about how we are all connected as humans through history. There is definitely this view that not as much with paintings, people don't know how to fix paintings, not as much with photographs or books, people are a little scared of that, but usually when an object breaks, people go, oh, I can fix that. So you find very strong opinions about that of, well, oh, you just use some glue on that. And really this idea of conservation and what I do is a lot bigger than that, because it's exactly as you said, it's, it's looking at all these different aspects of an object and why that object is important and how that importance, whatever makes that object important, can be preserved in the future. So there's a lot of thinking that goes on. An example of that would be not a project I worked on, but there was a table at Versailles and it had a, it was a lovely French polished table and it had a ring mark on it because somebody had put their mug there at some point and left a watermark on it. And so people would say, well, why don't you remove that watermark on that table? Well, that watermark was historically important because that was a watermark that Marie Antoinette had left on that table. So just looking at an object for its current state and saying, oh, that should be fixed. That's what we find with this culture of people stripping and dipping furniture and completely replacing original finishes. And that's not what we do, that we try to conserve whatever is important in that piece. You're conserving the living history of the object. Exactly. So I think what we've really hit on today is how much um, your work as a conservator shows that everything around us has a history. And we're all a part of that history, whether it's an uh, object in your house or a piece of furniture or something you just see every day or pass on the street every day. Um, that history is all around us and it's interwoven into all of our lives. We hope you as listeners have been able to appreciate how history isn't just objective and present. It's something intangible and ongoing that we're all a part of. So thanks so much for uh, coming and talking to us today, Danny. Well, thanks for inviting me. Notice History is a No History podcast. We are produced by Robin Mullins and Emily Cuggy. This week's audio editor was Emily Cuggy. For more information about today's topic, visit us at nohistory.ca slash podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at nohistory.ca or find us on social media at Notice History. If you like what you hear, tell your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.